It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Tuesday, July 21st, 2009. Very important day here at Fighting for the Faith. Mucho importante program topic. In fact, we will only be dealing with one thing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. This topic preempts everything else. It preempts the news, it preempts email, even the sermon review. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. Dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It doesn't matter if the person that is making the claim has a darling sweet deal with Zondervan Publishing, the, quote, premier Christian publishing house in the United States, and is making the rounds of all the youth groups of America via NUMA videos and has rock star status. Doesn't matter how popular they are, how much good they're, quote, doing in the world, or how much money they're using to feed the poor. We compare their doctrine, we compare their teaching to the Word of God. Because God's Word is true, and men, well, they many times turn out to be liars. Today's topic, by the way, in case you haven't guessed from the slight uh, hints that I've dropped today, is going to be about Rob Bell. There's a video that uh, a listener has given me a link to, and it's called The Gospel According to Rob Bell. And this is serious. This is a majorly important topic. Why? Well, because the gospel is at the very heart and center of Christianity. If you get the gospel message wrong, it doesn't matter uh, pretty much whatever else you think you have right. For instance, you can believe in the, in the deity of Christ and the virgin birth, and if you don't have the correct gospel, uh, you're sending people to hell. Now, I know that sounds like, well, gosh, Chris, that's awful harsh of you. You know, man, show a little charity and some Christian unity, man, you know. I, well, um, the problem is, is that that is exactly, and I mean exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote for us in Galatians chapter 1. Keep in mind, um, the epistle to the Galatian church was written to Christians, people who believed that Jesus died for our sins, that he was dead and raised again from the dead. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in Christ's deity. These weren't a bunch of liberals running around denying a whole bunch of Christian doctrines and preaching a, quote, social gospel. These are people who who believed, uh, who came to Christ as a result of the gospel that was preached by the Apostle Paul. These were not Moonies. These were not Mormons. These, you see where I'm going with this? And yet, they believed a false gospel. What had happened after the Apostle Paul had established a church and then uh, left, some people came in and, well, they preached a different gospel 
and added to the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul preached. And so we read from uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be damned. Let him be anathema. That's how serious it is to preach another gospel. Well, that kind of begs the question, well, what exactly was the gospel that the, the, the Apostle Paul preached? Well, I'm glad that you asked because the Apostle Paul actually records that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 through 6 says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So here the Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of the gospel that he preached to them. Do you think for a second that the Apostle Paul preached a different gospel to the Galatians and then a different gospel to the Corinthians and then a different gospel to the Colossians? Or do you think he preached the same gospel from church to church to church, from region to region to region? You bet your bippy he preached the same gospel over and over again. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, unless you hold fast to the word that I preach, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James and to the, all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If somebody's preaching to you a different gospel than that gospel, Paul says, let him be anathema. And that's not just his opinion. Paul said that under the inspiration of the Holy Script of the Holy Spirit, and that is recorded for us in God's Word. The gospel is not a side issue. The gospel is at the very heart of and center of Christianity. You get the gospel wrong, you are sending yourself and other people to hell. You don't mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today's topic, as I've stated earlier, is dedicated to one issue. The gospel as laid out by Rob Bell, one of the teaching pastors, the founding teaching pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a darling of Zondervan Publishing, star of the numerous NUMA videos. Something seriously wrong with this guy's teaching. I've been smelling smoke for years from this guy, and now, well, 
it's erupted into full-blown fire. Why do I say that? Well, here's what we're going to do. Since today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is dedicated to one singular topic, this topic, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you the audio from this video. I'm not going to interrupt it. I'm going to let you hear the whole thing in context. And then we're going to circle back and we're going to pull this thing apart piece by piece. Not only are there doctrinal errors in here, there are historical errors in here, and he's engaging in something called deconstructionism. This is a very, very dangerous, quote, gospel that he's preaching, and I am not going to back off from my assessment, I'll tell you ahead of time. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the gospel that the apostles preached. This is something completely different. I know you're thinking, well, man, that's a serious charge, Rosebro. Yep, I'm fully aware of it. I'm willing at this point to stand by my assessment. And unless I hear otherwise from Rob Bell, which I seriously doubt, I'm going to basically make the charge, this is not Christianity. This is a rehashed liberalism, if you would. Kind of an interesting spin on liberalism. The, the liberal social gospel, if you would. This is seriously, seriously dangerous and heretical stuff. So without any further ado, I know that's quite a lead up to it. I'm going to play for you the audio here. This is the gospel according to Rob Bell. You will be hearing music and Rob Bell speaking. If you would like to see the video, I uh, posted it on Facebook earlier. Uh, you can see it on my Facebook page. I'll also tweet it out. Uh, toward the end of the show so that you can uh, see the video itself. But this is some serious stuff. Put your thinking caps on. Get your Bibles out. Those of you who know history, we're going to be doing a little bit of historical work today too. So uh, strap in, sit down. This is going to be um, not fun. This is, this is a serious, serious issue that we're dealing with. So without any further ado, here is Rob Bell and the Gospel according to Rob Bell. Sometime in the first century, around the year 30, a movement was started by a group of Jews who insisted that their rabbi, a man named Jesus, from the Galilee region in Israel, had risen from the dead after being crucified by the Roman Empire. They claimed that after his resurrection, they had seen him, and that they had had conversations with him and eaten meals with him, and then they said that he had ascended to heaven and that someday he would return. Now, the world at this time was ruled by the Roman Empire, this giant military global superpower. From England to India, the Roman Empire ruled the world. And one of the most popular gods of the Roman Empire was the god Mithra. Mithra's followers believed that Mithra had been born of a virgin, that he was a mediator between God and humans, and that Mithra had ascended to heaven. Another popular religion at this time centered around the god Attis. The followers of Attis believed that Attis had been born of a virgin and each spring they gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Attis. Which takes us back to the Roman Empire, which was ruled by a succession of emperors called the Caesars. The first one, Julius Caesar, when he died, a comet appeared in the sky. And people said, well, of course, that's Julius Caesar, the son of God. 
ascending to the right hand of the gods in heaven. Soon after this, Julius Caesar's adopted son, Caesar Augustus, came to power. And Caesar Augustus believed that he was the son of God sent by the gods to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. One of his popular propaganda slogans was, There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Caesar. Caesar inaugurated a 12-day celebration of his birth called the Advent of Caesar. Another popular phrase at the time, people would literally greet each other on the street by saying, Caesar is Lord. And so in, so in the first century, to claim that your God had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, well, it just wasn't that unique. The claims of these first Christians weren't really anything knew. Everybody's God had risen from the dead. What makes yours so special? Now, these first Christians believed that Jesus' resurrection had implications for the entire universe. Their tradition had taught them that the world is broken and desperately in need of repair, and that at some point in the future, God was going to put it all back together. Now, for them, this future restoration had nothing to do with leaving this world. It was all about the restoration, the renewing, and the reclaiming of this world. And so they saw in Jesus' resurrection the beginning of this universe-wide movement to put it all back together. Well, this, of course, brought them into direct conflict with the Roman Empire, because remember, for the Caesars, it was all about Caesar's belief that he was making a new and better world through his power, through his armies, and through his wealth. And so when Caesar wanted to send out a message to let everybody know of his latest military conquest or his latest accomplishments, he would send out a royal pronouncement telling the masses of his latest achievements. These pronouncements were called in the Greek language euangelions. A euangelion was like a gospel or a good news. In English, euangelion spells evangelical. Now, these first Christians believed very passionately that the world was not made better through military power and political coercion. This gospel they were living had nothing to do with using political force to force people to live according to your laws. For them, this gospel was about serving the world, especially those on the underside of the empire. For them, it was about serving, not ruling. And so they took this empire propaganda term, gospel, and they used it to describe this new world that Jesus and his followers were making right under the nose of the empire because their way, the way of Jesus, was totally opposed to the way of Rome. And so when we read accounts of how they lived, we read that they shared their possessions, they fed the hungry, and they carried each other's burdens. Well, it's, it's because the gospel for them was a whole way of life, a whole new world right in the midst of this one. Now, Caesar had a particular word that was used for a city or a village or a province that worshipped Caesar as the son of God, that acknowledged Caesar as Lord. And so Caesar would conquer with his armies a new land and then demand that all of the people would confess Caesar is Lord. If people didn't, 
Well, then they were crucified as a way of showing everybody else what happens when you refuse to submit to the power of the empire. But if, but if a group of people did, if a city or a village of a region did acknowledge and worship Caesar as the Son of God, Lord, if they did accept Caesar as their Savior, then their area became a worshiping center of the Caesar. These worshiping centers were called in the Greek language ekklesias. The word ekklesia translates in English church. And so these first Christians took this empire propaganda term, ecclesia, and they used it to describe their gatherings, the ones where they confessed Jesus is Lord. Well, obviously, the way they were living and the things they believed brought them, uh, it raised all sorts of questions for those around them. Who do you believe? Caesar? who thinks that a new world, a better world, is made through his brute military and political power by forcing people to do what he says? Or Jesus, who invites you to make a new and better world through loving acts of compassion and generosity? Caesar, who killed Jesus on an execution stake? Or God, who raised Jesus from the dead? Whose way do you think is better? Who do you think is Lord? Jesus? Or Caesar, whose kingdom do you find more compelling? For them, the gospel was an invitation to a whole new way of life. And they lived this way because they had this profoundly mystical understanding of what they were doing with their lives. They called themselves the body of Christ. And they believe that in their communities, in these loving, compassionate, generous, peace-loving communities, they believe that Jesus was present in a way that went beyond words. So they'd invite people to join them, to eat with them, to celebrate with them, to suffer with them. And then they'd ask them, after they'd seen the hungry fed, the lonely loved, and the poor honored, they'd ask people, well, well do you think Jesus is here? Or more specifically, who do you think is Lord? Who's making a better world, Caesar or Jesus? They believe that a church was a living, breathing display of a whole new world God was bringing about right here, right now. Because some people, some people are fierce with reality, aren't they? They don't have to spout off about how they're right and everybody else is wrong because there's something going on inside of them so powerful, so tangible. You can't help but ask them questions. You're dying to know why they are the way they are. You want them to explain the reason for the hope that's within them. It's because when you're around people like this, you have the sense that you've in some way been with Jesus. And that is church. This group of people who, by their compassion, their generosity, the grace that they extend to others, you find yourself believing when you're around them that God hasn't given up on the world. That's the gospel. That's it. The gospel is the good news that God hasn't given up 
on the world. That, that the tomb is empty and that a giant resurrection rescue is underway and that you and I can be a part of it. And so, yes, this has a deeply personal dimension to this. Jesus is saving me. He's saving me from my sins, from my mistakes, from my pride, from my indifference to the suffering of the world around me, from my cynicism and despair. The brokenness I see in the world around me is true of my own soul. And so he's rescuing me moment by moment, day by day, because God wants to put it all back together. You, me, the whole world. And so he starts deep inside each of us with our awareness that we need help, that we need saving, that we need rescuing. And then he begins to show us step by step what it looks like to put flesh and blood on this gospel because we all fall short. And that's the beautiful part. Broken, flawed, vulnerable people like you and me are invited to be the hands and feet of a Jesus who loves us exactly as we are and yet loves us way too much to let us stay that way. I believe. I believe because I see. I see the resurrection all around me. If people only had your life and they were asked the question, has Jesus risen from the dead? How would they answer? Has he? May you be a yes to the question, has Jesus risen from the dead? And may you come to see, may you understand that you are the good news. You are the gospel. All right, there you have it. That's the thing in its entirety. It's that's the uh, the quote good news according to Rob Bell, and uh, boy, is this fraught with problems. Some of them are more obvious than others, but we're going to take this whole thing apart and uh, really compare what this what Rob Bell is claiming about the gospel. Uh, to the Word of God, and also some of the claims that he makes about historical uh, facts, so to speak. Uh, Is that in accordance with the truth? Is he speaking accurately about Mithra and Addis and these uh, other religions? Well, we're going to answer that question when we get back. It's all so very important, because he just told us a story. You were the gospel. He said that uh, the gospel is the good news that God hasn't given up on the world. And apparently the proof of the resurrection is that you're the resurrection. Is is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the scriptures teach is the good news? Well, when we come back from this break, we're going to uh, attack this thing properly and uh, and basically start doing the hard work here is what you heard Christianity is what you heard the biblical gospel stay tuned 
If you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? 
What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, "Judas hung himself." It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish. A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. back you're listening to fighting for the faith today's uh, preempted show is dealing only with one topic uh, the gospel according to rob bell um the question is does this uh, comport with uh, is it compatible with is it the same message of the uh, the gospel according to well the scriptures and you know, the ones the apostles taught Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that your financial support for what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is critical, vital, necessary, uh, not uh, not optional, and for in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can uh, visit our website, that is fightingforthefaith.com, home of our archives, by the way. And there at FightingForTheFaith.com, you will see uh, a friendly, uh, several friendly yellow donate buttons, which allow you to support us and send in your gift securely online instantly. It all happens rather quickly. Or you can do it the traditional way. Traditional way being make your gift check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 Three eight. So the question before us now that uh, we've listened to uh, Rob Bell's uh, gospel is, is this the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is this the same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached? 
I mean, maybe he's Rob Bell has just found a new and postmodern way of saying the same thing. Is that the case, or is there uh, something else going on here? I'm going to make the charge that there is something else going on here. This is not the same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached. This is something completely different. It's very subtle, it's very scary, and it's very wrong on a lot of levels. It sounds loving, it sounds kind, it sounds spiritual, and it sounds Christian. But this is not the Christian gospel. This is something different, okay? Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, pulling this apart. And the the reason why we're going to do it, we're going to spend so much time on this uh, historical stuff, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time. I want you to hear some uh, good scholarship regarding these mystery religions is that it's important because what Rob Bell is engaging in here is called deconstructionism. He is deconstructing the Christian gospel and the Christian message and building something else. Now, by way of a little bit of history, okay, um, there a long time ago um, in the scholarly circles of liberals and and those who had who were subject to flights of fancy regarding uh, bad scholarship as it pertained to the mystery religions of ancient Greece and Rome. There was a claim that Christianity ripped off the, their ideas regarding death and resurrections and virgin births from the pagan mystery religions. The reality is, is that if you know your scholarship, this claim has been repudiated, proven to be false, and no serious scholar really considers this to be a problem. Christianity did not borrow its ideas from the pagan religions. Why is this important? Well, because right off the bat, Rob Bell makes some claims about Mithra and Attis and uh, the uh, uh, the cults surrounding Caesar that are just um, more than a little bit off. I don't consider that to be a mistake. I think Rob Bell is a neoliberal. He's a postmodern liberal, but he's literally he's a neoliberal. This is liberalism. Uh, uh, with a rock and roll haircut, with really cool glasses and a nice uh, videography, uh, cinematography and videography. But uh, we're so here we go. We're going to start. I'm going to play this again, and we're going to pause it and kind of take some time to do some good work here. So here's Rob Bell again. Sometime in the first century, around the year 30, a movement was started by a group of Jews who insisted that their rabbi, a man named Jesus, from the Galilee region in Israel, had risen from the dead after being crucified by the Roman Empire. Okay, got to stop there. Uh, We're going to be picky on this one here, and I'm not giving him any passes. Crucified under Pontius Pilate, but according to the Gospels, it was... uh, the Jews who had Jesus put to death. The instrument of the crucifixion was Pilate, and Pilate wasn't exactly a willing accomplice. According to the eyewitness testimony, Jesus wasn't put to death and crucified by the Roman Empire uh, because he was a pacifist or because they had aught with him. It was the Jews who held a kangaroo court and determined that Jesus needed to be crucified. And when they brought him to Pilate, Pilate 
really wanted to let Jesus go. So, yes, the Roman authorities, the Roman government was the instrument by which Jesus was put to death. But to say that he was crucified by the Roman Empire um, you know, makes it sound like Jesus was some kind of a political martyr. And uh, and the reason why he was put to death is because he, he had a run-in run uh, with the Roman Empire. But that's not the case. I bring that up because, again, I'm not giving him a pass on nothing. So, yeah, we confess in the creed that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but we read in the Gospels it was the Jews uh, who brought Jesus up on charges in a kangaroo court in the middle of the night, and that, and that uh, Pilate was looking for a way to let Jesus go, even to the point of, you know, basically giving the people a vote between Jesus or Barabbas. Remember that? Whom do you want me to release to you, Pilate asks. We want Barabbas. Well, then what should I do with this king of the Jews? Crucify him. And what does Pilate do? He washes his hands and says, his blood be on you. Right? Pilate doesn't want to do this. And what do the Jews in the crowd say? Let his blood be on us and on our children too. So here we got Rob Bell saying, technically this is correct, but the reason I'm counteracting what he's saying is because of what he says later about the gospel. This Jesus wasn't crucified as a martyr of the, quote, Roman imperial machine. It's not that he was uh, one of the kids in Tiananmen Square who got run over by the tanks of the Communist Party. That's not what happened. We continue. They claimed that after his resurrection, they had seen him and that they had had conversations with him and eaten meals with him. And then they said that he had ascended to heaven and that someday he would return. Now, the world at this time was ruled by the Roman Empire, this giant military global superpower from England to India the Roman Empire ruled the world and one of the most popular gods of the Roman Empire was the god Mithra Mithra's followers believed that Mithra had been born of a virgin that he was a mediator between God and humans and that Mithra had ascended to heaven now stop okay everything that Rob Bell told you about Mithra we've got some serious problems with this is this is a historical anachronism and what he said is inaccurate at best okay it is inaccurate at best now what i recommend that you do for those of you who do not believe me or those of you who just want to dig deeper into this two books that you should get two of them i you know you go to amazon.com and purchase them. The one first is called The Gospel and the Greeks, written by Ronald Nash. Uh, Dr. Nash is dead now, okay? 
but he was the professor of philosophy and theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He spent uh, 27 years as the professor of philosophy and head of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Western Kentucky University. He was awarded uh, the Ph.D. by Syracuse University. And he was the author and editor of more than 20 books, including The Closing, uh, including the closing of the American Heart, What's Really want Wrong with uh, America's Schools, Christian Faith and Historical Understanding, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so this guy knew his stuff, okay? And, in fact, his book was pl- plugged in its original uh, edition by none other than Edwin Yama, uh, Yamauchi, who was the professor of, of uh, history at uh, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And I'm telling you, um, Yamauchi and Nash are no slouches, okay? That's one book that you need to get. And if you, know, if you really want to read a book that's definitive on this subject, that's a good one. However, there's another really good one, too. And um, if you want some, you know, kind of a shorter synopsis of this issue... I would recommend that you pick up a copy of Lee Strobel's The Case for the Real Jesus. Challenge number four uh, in this book, so it's a chapter long, is uh, Christianity's belief about Jesus, they, the, you know, ch- taking on the challenge that Christians' beliefs were about Jesus were copied from pagan religions. Now, I'm going to point something out to you. Rob Bell is taking a different spin off of an old idea that has already been soundly refuted. And I mean, there isn't a shred of evidence for the claims that Christianity borrowed from the pagan mystery religions. If you know your stuff, if you know your history, then you will realize that Christianity didn't borrow anything from any of the pagan mystery religions, and there is no overlap at all. Okay? Rob Bell here has taken a different spin off of that age-old, tired question that comes to us from the early 20th century about whether or not Christianity borrowed from the pagan religions. He's just assuming that argument is true and putting a slightly different spin on it and basically saying, oh, this is no big deal, Mithra and, all, you know, and the other religions believe the same things. What he's saying is historically false, historically false way, way off the mark, okay? First of all, Mithra was not born of a virgin. If you understand anything about the Mithra religion, Mithra was born from a rock, not a virgin, okay? The Mithra religion really wasn't up and running in the Roman Empire until the middle of the second century, Yeah, that's right, the middle of the second century. Don't believe me? Go do your homework and come back to me with your facts that contradict it because all the major scholars on this are all in agreement. The Mithra religion really wasn't a factor in the early part of the first century when the apostles lived and wrote their gospels. Mithra wasn't around. When Christianity was spreading through the the first century Roman Empire through the missionary efforts of the apostle Paul, the Mithra religion was a complete non-factor. Complete non-factor. Wasn't there. Didn't exist. So what he's saying is false. Same thing regarding the, quote, God Addis. Okay? Well, anyway, tell you what I'm going to do. Okay? 
to kind of help things out a little bit here. I'm, we're going to do a little bit of a detour, and I want you to hear this. I have the audiobook version of Lee Strobel's The Case for the Real Jesus, and I want you to listen to a few minutes, uh, more than a few minutes, of uh, Lee Strobel and his uh, conversation with Edwin Yamauchi regarding Mithra. Okay? This is important because what Rob Bell here is smuggling in, a, he's smuggling in liberal scholarship and liberal ideas and pawning them off as if they're facts when they couldn't be farther from the truth. Why is this important? Because it plays in to the false gospel that he's uh, basically trying to pawn off on you. So here is Lee Strobel uh, from his book, The Case for the Real Jesus. Fantastic book, by the way. Strobel does a great job. If you if you're an apologist or interested in Christian apologetics, fine work, fine job, good interviews, great stuff. Anyway, uh, here's uh, Lee Strobel talking uh, with uh, his uh, talking about his conversation with Edwin Yamauchi regarding uh, Mithraism. With a doctorate in Mediterranean studies from Brandeis University. And having taught at Miami University of Ohio for more than 35 years, Edwin Yamauchi has been called a scholar's scholar. As one admiring colleague put it, he has dug archaeologically, taught brilliantly, read voraciously, researched meticulously, and published endlessly. Yamauchi has studied 22 languages, including Akkadian, Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, Chinese, Comanche, Coptic, Egyptian, and Syriac. He has received eight fellowships from Brandeis, Rutgers, and elsewhere, delivered 88 papers on Mithraism, Gnosticism, and other topics at scholarly societies, published nearly 200 articles and reviews in professional journals, lectured at more than 100 colleges and universities, including Cornell, Princeton, Temple, Yale and the University of Chicago, and participated in archaeological expeditions, including the first excavation of the Herodian Temple in Jerusalem. Yamauchi's 17 books include the 578-page authoritative tome, Persia and the Bible, which includes his findings on Mithraism, as well as the books Greece and Babylon, Gnostic Ethics and Mandian Origins, The Stones and the Scriptures, Pre-Christian Gnosticism, the Archaeology of the New Testament, the World of the First Christians, and Africa and the Bible. In 1975, he was invited to deliver a paper at the Second International Congress of Mithraic Studies in Tehran, a conference hosted by the then Empress of Iran. Born into a Japanese Buddhist family, but a Christian since 1952, Yamauchi has a sterling reputation in the academic world. One book called him a scholar known for his extreme care and sober judgment with historical texts. Award-winning historian Paul Meyer said Yamauchi wields crystal logic and hard, potent evidence. And then he added these words. No one in the academic world today can better sniff out sensationalism in place of sense, excesses beyond the evidence, and speculation instead of scholarship. Whatever historical or theological fad might come along, and so many have, one brilliant article by Yamauchi supplies the evidence to skewer any bloated pretensions against the cause of truth. Uh, Can I pause there for a second? Uh, This is Lee Strobel reading from his own book, by the way. Uh, Why why did I 
want to start the tape at that point because I want to make it perfectly clear. Yamauchi is no slouch. This man knows what he's talking about. This is a man who's, if you're going to refute or claim Yamauchi is a, is, is got some axe to grind, you, you don't know what you're talking about. This man has impeccable credentials. He knows his stuff. And would he make the claim, would he support the claims about Mithra and Addis that uh, Rob Bell makes in his gospelless gospel presentation? Let's find out. That's exactly what I needed for this topic, where so many voices of questionable credibility are making such serious claims. And that's why I interviewed him for my earlier book, The Case for Christ, about the evidence for Jesus in ancient sources outside the Bible. At the time, I found him to be unassuming, soft-spoken, thorough, and highly credible. He was not as loquacious as some scholars I've questioned, but his statements tended to be heavy with meaning. He and Kimmy greeted me at the door before she departed to do some volunteer work in the community. Although recently retired from Miami University, Yamauchi continues to teach a few history courses there. Now on the cusp of 70 years of age, the bespectacled scholar was spry and focused, his hair highlighted with silver. He walked me down into his basement, much of which was a warren of bookshelves, and we sat at a small table on which I saw stacks of papers. I immediately knew what they were. I had let Yamauchi know in advance the topics I wanted to cover, because I was aware of his penchant to back up his opinions with scholarly articles by other experts. I could see that he was ready for me. Maybe you could start by giving me some background on the mystery religions, I began as we claimed chairs on adjacent sides of the table. When were they popular? What traits did they have in common? The so-called mystery religions were a variety of religious movements from the eastern Mediterranean that flourished in the early Roman Empire, he replied, sipping from a cup of coffee. They offered salvation in a tight-knit community. They were called mystery religions because those who were initiated into them were sworn to secrecy. They had sacred rites, often a common meal, and a special sanctuary. What was the oldest of them, I asked? That would be the Eleusinian cult of Demeter, which was already established in the Archaic Age of Greece, which would be from 800 to 500 B.C. The latest, and certainly the most popular in the later Roman Empire, was the Mysteries of Mithras, who started as a Persian god. There were also the Mysteries of Sibylle and Attis, which were restricted to non-Romans until the middle or late first century. Gotta stop there. Listen to what he just said. According to... Edwin Yamauchi, the religions of Sibyl, Sibylle and Addis were restricted to non-Romans until the middle or late first century. This flies in the face of Rob Bell's claims. Can we continue? Late first century. Were some of these religions tied to the vegetation cycle, I asked, thinking back to Lacona's comments? Oh, yes, many of them were, he confirmed. Trying to narrow the topic a bit, I asked, who popularized the idea that Jesus' resurrection was derived from the worship of dying and rising fertility gods? In the scholarly world, these comparisons were promoted by a group of scholars called the History of Religion School, which flourished at the end of the 19th and into the early 20th centuries. 
The seminal work by Richard Ritzenstein was published in German in 1910, but not translated into English until 1978. He thought the sacrifice of Christ aligned itself with the killing of a bull by Mithras. Karsten Kolpe and others severely criticized the anachronistic use of sources by these scholars. On the popular level, Sir James Fraser gathered a mass of parallels in his multi-volume work called The Golden Bow, which was published in 1906, Yamauchi continued. He discussed Osiris of Egypt, Adonis of Syria, Addis of Asia Minor, and Tammuz of Mesopotamia, and concluded that there was a common rising and dying fertility god. Unfortunately, much of his work was based on a misreading of the evidence, but nevertheless, this helped introduce these ideas to popular culture. Later, in the 1930s, three influential French scholars claimed that Christianity was influenced by the Hellenistic mystery religions. Yamauchi picked up a copy of an article he had written and scanned it for a quote. One of these scholars, he said, said Christ was a savior god after the manner of an Osiris, an Addis, a Mithras. Like Adonis, Osiris, and Addis, he died a violent death, and like them, he returned to life. I glanced at my notes. Albert Schweitzer said that popular writers made the mistake of taking various fragments of information and manufacturing a kind of universal mystery religion which never actually existed, least of all in Paul's day. Do you agree? Yes, there was a widespread view that there was a general, common mystery religion, but upon closer examination of the sources, nobody believes that any longer, he replied. These were quite different beliefs. In fact, by the mid-20th century, scholars had established that the sources used in these writings were far from satisfactory, and the parallels were much too superficial. It was pretty much of a closed issue in the scholarly community, but it seems to have been revived in recent years among writers on a popular level, sort of like Frankenstein. Yamauchi's comments reminded me of the words of the late scholar Ronald H. Nash, the highly respected professor with a doctorate from Syracuse University and author of more than 30 books, who said in his book, The Gospel and the Greeks, this, During a period of time, running roughly from about 1890 to 1940, Scholars often allege that primitive Christianity had been heavily influenced by Platonism, Stoicism, the pagan mystery religions, or other movements in the Hellenistic world. Largely as a result of a series of scholarly books and articles written in rebuttal, allegations of early Christianity's dependence on its Hellenistic environment began to appear much less frequently in the publications of Bible scholars and classical scholars. Today, most Bible scholars regard the question as a dead issue, he said. Nash went on to lament the revival of these discredited theories. He said that a few current textbooks, as well as more popular publications, were repeating claims and arguments that should have been laid to rest decades ago, circulating one-sided and misinformed arguments, and ignoring the weighty scholarly opinion that has already been published to refute their assertions. Efforts to undermine the uniqueness of the Christian revelation via claims of a pagan religious influence collapse quickly once a full account of the information is available, he insisted. That was precisely what I was determined to investigate as I turned my interview with Yamauchi to issues involving the most commonly cited mystery religion, Mithraism. To make sure we were on the same page, I asked Yamauchi to provide an overview of Mithraic beliefs. 
he took a drink of coffee before launching into his reply. Mithraism was a late Roman mystery religion that was popular among soldiers and merchants, and which became a chief rival to Christianity in the 2nd century and later, he said. When did it become a rival? 2nd century and later. Rob Bell, by making the claim that people who believed in Mithra at the time of the apostles, he doesn't know his history at all. That would be like saying, "Hey, listen, Mormonism is one of the is one of the most prominent religions in the United States, and uh, and Mormonism had a fundamental influence on the founding fathers of the United States." You say, wait a second. I agree with you that Mormonism is a, is an important religion in the U.S., but Mormonism came about, it basically came into existence in the middle of the 19th century and therefore had no influence whatsoever on the founding fathers of the United States. By making the claim that Mithraism was around, and that people's reaction was like, nah, it's no big deal. We had dying and rising and virgin-born Mithra is a complete anachronistic lie. He's off by a hundred years. Peter, he said, the initiates were all men, although one of my students, Jonathan David, recently published a paper arguing that some women may have been involved. The participants met in a cave-like structure called a Mithraeum which had as its cult statue Mithras stabbing a bull, the so-called Tauroctony. How much information about Mithraism exists, I asked. There are relatively few texts from the Mithraists themselves. We have some graffiti and inscriptions, as well as descriptions of the religion from its opponents, including Neoplatonists and Christians. Much of what has been circulated on Mithraism has been based on the theories of a Belgium scholar named Franz Cumont. He was the leading scholar on Mithraism in his day, and he published his famous work, Mysteries of Mithras, in 1903. This work led to speculation by the History of Religion School that Mithraism had influenced nascent Christianity. Much of what Cumont suggested, however, turned out to be quite unfounded. In the 1970s, scholars at the Second Mithraic Congress in Tehran came to criticize Cumont. Yamauchi dug out a large photograph from the papers on his desk, showing a crowd of scholars at the Congress posing with the Empress of Iran on the front steps of a stately building. I surveyed the faces and quickly picked out Yamauchi in the front row. The Congress produced two volumes of papers, he said. A scholar named Richard Gordon from England and others concluded that Cumont's theory was not supported by the evidence. And in fact, Cumont's interpretations have now been analyzed and rejected on all major points. Contrary to what Cumont believed, even though Mithras was a Persian god who was attested as early as the 14th century B.C., we have almost no evidence of Mithraism in the sense of a mystery religion in the West until very late too late to have influenced the beginnings of Christianity. That Mithraism had no influence on early Christianity, yet alone the early Roman Empire culture to which Christianity was uh, shedding its light. When we come back from uh, the second uh, break, we will continue with uh, Lee Strobel on this. I'm taking some time uh, on this Addis Mithras thing 
to kind of show you that what Rob Bell is doing is he's fabricating a false history in order to lend credibility to his claims regarding his false gospel. So you don't want to miss anything more. And, and those of you listening on the Christian Worldview Network, I understand we only broadcast our first hour there on the Christian Worldview Radio Network. Uh, if you want to hear the rest of today's uh, topic, you need to go to fightingforthefaith.com and uh, find today's program and listen to it uh, uh, online there. Uh, so just want to let you know. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there on Twitter is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and today's topic, the singular topic is the gospel according to Rob Bell, the video that's out there on the internet. We've got some major problems with it. Rob Bell has constructed a false history to uh, lend credibility to his false gospel, and we're walking our way through it, doing a little bit of work here on uh, the ancient mystery cults, playing a little bit from uh, Lee Strobel's uh, book, the case for the real Jesus in his interview with Edwin Yamauchi regarding Mithras. And uh, why is this important? Because Rob Bell doesn't even get the history right, and he's basically put a new spin on an old liberal argument. And uh, that has some pretty profound implications for the, quote, gospel that he's presenting. That being the case, let me continue with, our, uh, with uh, Lee Strobel in his interview with uh, Edwin Yamauchi. That was a critically important assessment that would seem to rule out the copycat theory. Seeking further clarification, I asked Yamauchi for details concerning when the Mithraic mysteries were introduced in the West. He took another sip of coffee and then answered. The first public recognition of the Mithras in Rome was a state visit of Tiridates, the king of Armenia, in A.D. 66. It's said that he addressed Nero by saying, and I have come to thee, my God, to worship thee as I do Mithras. Now, I've got to point something out here. The first real mention of Mithras in Rome 
dates back to the time of Nero. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were martyred by Nero. No chance that while they were spreading the gospel at this time that people would go, oh yeah, we've heard about this death and resurrection stuff because of Mithras. By the way, uh, Yamauchi will get into this. Um, uh, there is no account in the stories of Mithras regarding Mithras' uh, death or resurrection. There's also a reference earlier to some pirates in Cilicia who were worshippers of Mithras. But, he noted, this is not the same as Mithraism as a mystery religion. Settling back into a seat, he continued, Mithraism as a mystery religion cannot be attested before about A.D. 90, which is about the time we see a Mithraic motif in a poem by Statius. No Mithraea or Mithraic temples have been found at Pompeii, which was destroyed by the eruption of Vesuvius in A.D. 79. The earliest Mithraic inscription in the West is a statute of a prefect under the Emperor Trajan in A.D. 101. It's now in the British Museum. The earlier Mithraea are dated to the early 2nd century. There are a handful of inscriptions that date to the early 2nd century, but the vast majority of texts are dated after A.D. 140. Most of what we have as evidence of Mithraism comes in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries A.D., That's basically what's wrong with the theory about Mithraism influencing the beginnings of Christianity. The timing is wrong, I observed. That's correct, he said, picking up a copy of his hefty Persia and the Bible and leafing through it until he found a reference to Gordon, the senior fellow at the University of East Anglia, who has published extensively on history and archaeology. Gordon dates the establishment of the Mithraic mysteries to the reign of Hadrian, which was A.D. 117 to 138. Get the date? Paul and uh, the apostles are dead now. They're gone. And this is when Mithraism as a mystery religion begins to take off? Hmm. Is Rob Bell just mistaken in his facts, or is he engaging in knowing deception? Or Antoninus Pius, which would be from 138 to 161, Yamauchi said. Specifically, Gordon said, it is therefore reasonable to argue that Western Mithraism did not exist until the mid-2nd century, at least in a developed sense. There you go. Then he picked up a photocopy of an article from a scholarly journal called Mithras, published by the Society for Mithraic Studies in the aftermath of the 1974 Iranian conclave of scholars. He read the words of E.J. Yarnold of Oxford University. He said, quote, The fervor with which historians used to detect wholesale Christian borrowings from the Mithraic and other mysteries has now died down. Yamauchi looked up at me. As Ronald Nash and so many other knowledgeable scholars have concluded, the dating disproves that Christianity borrowed its tenets from Mithraism, he said. Indeed, Nash is emphatic, saying, The flowering of Mithraism occurred after the close of the New Testament canon, too late for it to have influenced the development of first century Christianity. Also, relevant to Rob Bell's claims, too late for it for people to basically say, Ah, no big deal. Yeah, you know, all, all gods die and rise from the dead. 
Yamauchi loaded me down with copies of academic articles and books by highly regarded scholars who back up that claim. Manfred Kloss, professor of ancient history at Free University in Berlin, said in The Roman Cult of Mithras that it does not make sense to interpret the Mithraic mysteries as a forerunner of Christianity. In his book, Mithraism and Christianity, published by Cambridge University Press, L. Patterson concluded that there is no direct connection between the two religions, either in origin or development. Gary Lease, professor of religious studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz and longtime executive secretary of the North American Association for the Study of Religion, noted in an academic article that such eminent scholars as Adolf von Harnack, Arthur Darby Nock, S.G.F. Brandon, William R. Holliday, and Ernst Benz have seen little evidence to support claims of such influence and mutual borrowing between Mithraism and Christianity. Lees, who earned his doctorate at the University of Munich, and later occupied its renowned Romano Guardini Chair for Theory of Culture and Religion, added this, After more than 100 years of unremitting labor, the conclusion appears inescapable that neither Mithraism nor Christianity proved to be an obvious and direct influence upon the other in the development and demise or survival of either religion. Their beliefs and practices are well accounted for by their most obvious origins, and there is no need to explain one in terms of the other. The weight of the evidence was heavy. The claim that Christianity borrowed its central ideas from Mithraism has been thoroughly demolished by a close examination of the dates for when it took root in the West. But what about the numerous parallels between Mithraism and Christianity? Now listen carefully here. So the dates basically say, hey, listen, Rob Bell's way off. Mithraism doesn't even take root until middle to late 2nd century in, in the Roman Empire as a mystery religion. His claims about people's reaction are so far off the mark for just from the dates that it's ridiculous. How about the claims, the, so, the so-called similarities that Rob Bell brought up? Listen to this. ...that popular writers, including novelist Dan Brown, have touted as evidence of Christianity's plagiarism. I was anxious to see how Yamauchi would handle those specific charges. I pulled out a list of parallels between Jesus and Mithras. First, popular writers claim that Mithras was born of a virgin, I said. Is that true that this is what Mithraism taught? Yamauchi looked pained. Listen to Yamauchi's answer. This isn't Roseboro's answer. This is Edwin Yamauchi's. Pained. No, that's definitely not true, he insisted. He was born out of a rock. A rock, I asked. Yes, the rock birth is commonly depicted in Mithraic reliefs, he explained. Mithras emerges fully grown and naked except for a cap, and he's holding a dagger and torch. In some variations, flames shoot out from the rock, or he's holding a globe in his hand. I chuckled. So, unless the rock is considered a virgin, this parallelism with Jesus then evaporates, I said. Entirely correct, he replied. And that means he wasn't born in a cave, which some writers claim is a second parallel to Christianity. Well, it is true that Mithraic sanctuaries were designed to look like caves, Yamauchi said. Gary Lease discusses that in his chapter on Mithraism and Christianity. 
I later examined Lisa's work. He makes the important observation that nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus described as having been born in a cave. This idea is first mentioned in the letter of Barnabas at the beginning of the second century. Justin Martyr said in the second century that Mithras' cave was a demoniacal imitation of the tradition that Jesus was born in a cave. Lees pointed out, however, that scholar Ernst Benz has shown conclusively that this Christian tradition does not come from a dependency on Mithraism, but rather from an ages-old tradition in Palestine itself of holy shrines in caves. Concluded Lees, there is no doubt that the Christian tradition does not stem from the Mithraic account. Returning to my list, I said to Yamauchi, The third supposed parallel with Jesus is that Mithras was born on December 25th. Again, that's not a parallel, he replied. Why not? Because we don't know the date Jesus was born, he said. The earliest date celebrated by Christians was January the 6th. In fact, it's still celebrated by many churches in the East. Of course, December the 25th is very close to the winter solstice. This was a date chosen by the Emperor Aurelian for the dedication of this temple to Sol Invictus, the god called the Unconquerable Sun. Mithras was closely associated with Sol Invictus. Sometimes they're depicted as shaking hands. This is apparently how Mithras became associated with December 25th. When did that date become Christmas for Christians? That seems to be in 336, a year before the death of Constantine, the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity. We know that before his conversion, he worshipped Sol Invictus. We know for sure that Constantine made Sunday, or the Lord's Day, an official holiday, even though Christians had already been observing it as a day on which Jesus was resurrected. So, it's conceivable Constantine also may have appropriated December 25th for the birthday of Christ. We know that Christian emperors and popes suggested that instead of simply banning pagan ceremonies, that they appropriate them for Christianity. What about the fourth parallel, that Mithras was a great traveler or master with twelve disciples? No, he was a god, not a teacher, Yamauchi replied, sounding a bit impatient. The fifth parallel is that his followers were promised immortality. Well, that can be inferred, but certainly that was the hope of most followers of any religion, he said, so that's not surprising. How about the sixth claim, which says that Mithras sacrificed himself for world peace? Yamauchi sighed. That's reading Christian theology into what's not there. He didn't sacrifice himself. He killed a bull. The seventh parallel, and one of the most important. Listen carefully. It's important is that Mithras was buried in a tomb and rose after three days, I said. Is there any truth to that? We don't know anything about the death of Mithras, Yamauchi said firmly. We have a lot of monuments, but we have almost no textual evidence, because this was a secret religion. But I know of no references to a supposed death and resurrection. Indeed, Richard Gordon declared in his book, Image and Value in the Greco-Roman World, that there is no death of Mithras, and thus there cannot be a resurrection. Okay. Now, that is just an example of, uh, of really good scholarship on this topic. What is Rob Bell doing? He's reconstructing. He's basically constructing a completely different history than the actual history of the early Roman Empire in order to reconstruct a different gospel. Now, regarding Attis, another deity that he makes claims about, 
Um, just so you know, time, you know, the timeline again is the most important thing. And uh, Swiss scholar Gunter Wagner, in an article, uh, in an article Yamauchi had written, says the ta- the the uh, terabolium of Addis of the Addis cult is first attested in the time of Antonius Pius or AD one sixty. As far as we can see at present, it only became a personal consecration at the beginning of the third century A.D. The idea of a, a rebirth through the, uh, the instrumentality of the terabolium only emerges in isolated incidents towards the end of the 4th century A.D. Ronald Nash, in his book, The Gospel and the Greeks, says this, Which mystery gods actually experienced a resurrection from the dead? Certainly, no early texts refer to any resurrection of Addis. Attempts to link the worship of Adonis to a resurrection are equally weak, nor is the case for a resurrection of Osiris any stronger. And, of course, no claim can be made that Mithras was a dying and rising god. French scholar André Boulanger concluded that the conception that the god dies and is resurrected in order to lead his faithful to eternal life is represented in zero. No Hellenistic mystery religions. None. Why is this important? Because Rob Bell supposedly is this really, really smart guy, and all these people are listening to him, and yet somehow he's not telling us the truth about these other religions early on. He's deconstructing Christianity and making it sound like the early claims of, you know, Jesus' virgin birth and death and resurrection. Oh, those were all commonplace in all the other uh, mystery re- religions of the time. The, an- the reality is, is, no, they were not. The facts bear out the fact that that is not the case. And let me bring a passage of Scripture in- to bear on this that also clearly demonstrates this. Okay? And if you would, this would be the text from which Mars Hill Bible Church apparently gets its name. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 17, when he visits Athens and sees all the idols there, he's provoked. And what does he do? He begins proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ alone, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is God and that he proved his claims to deity by raising himself from the dead and calling people to repent of their idolatry. Okay, So the Apostle Paul, speaking before the Areopagus, In Athens, on Mars Hill, states, Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Notice that Paul here is strongly contrasting the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, with the gods of uh, the pagans being worshipped there in Greece. Very, very different concepts altogether. Mythology it takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, at some place, some time in, in vague, vaporous history past, somewhere, sometime. 
Paul is making claims that had just taken place in their lifetime, very specific to a particular person at a very specific region of the Roman Empire, just a few years prior to this speech. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and have our being, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here, Paul, at the Areopagus, on Mars Hill, to these pagans, proclaims the resurrection of the dead. What was their reaction? Did they go, Oh, how boring. Yeah, we've heard all this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Death, resurrection. Yeah, all of our mystery religions say the same thing. No, listen. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, well, we will hear hear you again on this. And so the reaction was that they mocked him. Funny that they would do that. If they were so familiar with this virgin birth, death, and resurrection stuff, it was so commonplace. Don't you think they just would have said, ho-hum, big deal? But they didn't. They mocked Paul. Again, blowing a hole, complete big hole in Rob Bell's claims. So I'm going to back up the uh, the audio on this video a little bit more, and then we'll plow through this. I, I do all this work on purpose. You know, it's taking some time. Because of the fact that Rob Bell is telling some whopper lies here, and they are not without consequence. They are huge because he's reconstructing a false history to lend credence to his false gospel. So I back up the uh, the tape here, and uh, let's see. We go. ...was ruled by the Roman Empire, this giant military global superpower from england to india the roman empire ruled the world and one of the most popular gods of the roman empire was the god mithra now you know for a fact that mithra was not one of the most popular gods of the roman empire at this time in the first century yeah mithra was very popular in the third century you see the problem Mithra's followers believed that Mithra had been born of a virgin. No, actually, they believed he was born from a rock. What's Rob Bell playing at here? Why is he telling these lies? That he was a mediator between God and humans, and that Mithra had ascended to heaven. Funny, there's nothing of... Eh. Another popular religion at this time centered around the god Attis. Actually, no, that's not true. Attis worship and their ideas really didn't come about 
earliest attestations are 140 AD, and they, this doesn't even take root until the 4th century? Again, the scholars disagree with you, Rob. You're way, way off the mark. The followers of Attis believe that Attis had been born of a virgin, and each spring they gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Attis. By the way, the Attis stories, by the way, basically were mythologies designed to explain the passing of the seasons. How come the trees die in the fall and come back to life in the spring? Well, it has to do with the death and resurrection of Attis. How come, how, w w Mommy, why, why is there thunder and lightning? Well, the devil's beating his wife, and he's just a terrible husband. Oh, okay. You see? Which takes us back to the Roman Empire, which was ruled by a succession of emperors called the Caesar. Now, pay real close attention to what he's doing here. We're, this is going to be easy to, de to debunk here in a second. His, his facts that he's going to say are true to a point. The conclusions he's making are way off the mark. Again, what is he doing? He's reconstructing a false history to support his false gospel. Listen carefully. The first one, Julius Caesar, when he died, a comet appeared in the sky. And people said, well, of course, that's Julius Caesar, the son of God. Uh, by the way, very common practice in the ancient world is that if you were a king, you were considered a god king. This goes all the way back to Pharaoh, who was a god king. Yeah, see ascending to the right hand of the gods in heaven. Soon after this, Julius Caesar's adopted son, Caesar Augustus, came to power, and Caesar Augustus believed that he was the son of God sent by the gods to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. Now, this is, again, this is a reconstructed, this is a completely fabricated history with very with basic facts taken out of context and woven together into a different historical tapestry that's kind of missing the points here. Okay, again, common practice back in the ancient days is that if you were a king, you were a god king. Okay? Same thing with the Caesars. They were considered to be god kings. There, there was a religious aspect to their political power. One of his popular propaganda slogans was, There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Caesar. Caesar inaugurated a 12-day celebration of his birth called the Advent of Caesar. It's, it's, doesn't it just sound like Christianity just ripped all of this stuff off? You see... What's he basically saying? That Christianity picked up its major themes and language from the Roman mystery religions and from the cult of Caesar. Not from the historical Jesus Christ and his teachings and sound biblical doctrine. Keep in mind, Christianity is not a, um, it, well, it, it's not a mythology, Jesus Christ was a historical person who really truly rose from the dead, whose resurrection was witnessed by true eyewitnesses. Big difference than this other stuff. Another popular phrase at the time, people would literally greet each other on the street by saying, Caesar is Lord. And so in, so in the first century, to claim that your God had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, well, it just wasn't that unique. Actually, what he just said is an outright lie. 
that is not accurate at all historically. And Yamauchi would have aught to say with uh, young Rob Bell. The claims of these first Christians weren't really anything new. Yes, they really were. That's why people scoffed and mocked at them. They were very, very unique, very new, because they were claiming that a real person that they really saw really claimed to be God and really proved it by really rising from the dead, and this took place under the backwater Governor Pontius Pilate. Not too far away, over there in Jerusalem, the backwaters of uh, Judea. What Rob Bell said, that these, these claims were not unique, is absolutely a lie and false. So the question comes down, why is he lying about this? He's basically fabricating a different history in order to preach and proclaim a different gospel. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's hear his answers. Everybody's God had risen from the dead. Lie. Not true at all. By the way, even Osiris didn't rise from the dead. Those who claim, well, there's a death and resurrection story of Osiris. Osiris's body was torn into a bazillion pieces, and his sister Isis basically found a, you know, like 13 of the pieces and reconstructed him, and he, he became the lord of the underworld. It wasn't a resurrection with Osiris. It was a zombification. Osiris becomes a zombie. Very different than the claims of Jesus Christ. What makes yours so special? No, no one ever said that. Now, these first Christians believed that Jesus' resurrection had implications for the entire universe. Okay, got to listen very carefully to what he's about to say here. Rob Bell he believes in a very bizarre eschatology. I'm going to tell you what I, what I call it. Um, I call it Humpty Dumptyism, okay? This is you've heard of premillennial premillennialism, amillennialism, and all that kind of stuff. This is Humpty Dumptyism. Humpty Dumptyism basically teaches that uh, that uh, the the world fell off the was a fragile you know basically humanity in the world was fragile like Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and broke into a bazillion pieces. And the story of the gospel is that Jesus's all of Jesus's uh, horses and all of Jesus's men are trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So Humpty Dumptyism is his eschatology, and it's contradicted by Scripture. But listen carefully to what he says. Their tradition had taught them that the world is broken and desperately in need of repair, and that at some point in the future, God was going to put it all back together. Okay, now, does the Scripture teach, Does do the apostles teach that the world is broken and that God is going to put it all back together again. I pose the question, but I want you to listen more to what he's saying. Now for them, this future restoration had nothing to do with leaving this world. It was all about the restoration, the renewing, and the reclaiming of this world. And so they saw in Jesus' resurrection the beginning of this universe-wide movement to put it all back together. Humpty Dumptyism. Well, this, of course, brought them into direct Okay, now hold on a second here. Is that what is that what the uh, scriptures teach 
regarding the uh, you know eschatology that God is going to put it all back together again, and that's what we're seeing in the resurrection. This this uh, proof that God's going to put it all back together again. Well, let's do a little bit of uh, biblical work. Hebrews chapter one. Hang on a second here. Hebrews chapter one. I want to read. Okay. Context, context, context. I want to show you some passages of Scripture. Does the Scripture teach that everything's going to be humpty dumpty and, and fixed again? Or is God going to do to the world what basically happens to us? Death and resurrection. Right? Okay. Because uh, we, unless Christ comes back in our lifetime, a hundred years from now... We're all worm food anyway. And the worms that ate us, well, they have long since passed away too, 100 years from now. Uh, So we're all going to die. So what is the Christian hope? The hope of the resurrection from the dead. This same thing applies to planet Earth and the he- new, and that's why it says in Scripture there's a new heavens and new earth. But let me let me back it up biblically, kind of help you out here. Hebrews chapter one, I'll start at verse ten. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, and you will roll them up like a garment, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, pretty much make it clear that uh, the heavens and the earth are going to perish. Uh, let me do a little Greek work here. Let's see. They will perish. Uh, um Let's see. So, by the way, the Greek word there for perish is apolumi, and it literally means to cause or experience destruction, ruin, or to destroy. Okay? Now, I'm pointing this out on purpose because Rob Bell's uh, eschatology is Humpty Dumptyism, that Jesus is basically putting it all back together again. Yet, Hebrews 1, 11, talking about the heavens and the work of God's hand, the earth and the heavens, they will be destroyed. They will perish. Okay. Another passage in Hebrews I think is important. Hang on a second here. And looking from my notes here, Hebrews chapter 12, um, the verses in question are 26 and 27. Let me pull these out. <clears throat> Context of starting at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape uh, when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So basically, uh, Hebrews 11, uh, 26 and 27, talking about the heavens and the earth are going to be shaken. They're basically saying that they're going to be removed. They're going to be gone. But the clearest passage uh, really comes from Second Peter uh, chapter 3. And let me read this for you. Second Peter chapter 3, verse, uh, I think I want verse 10. Yes, verse 10. Context, context, context. Listen carefully. 
Verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Hang on a second. I want to see if uh, that's the same. Yep, uh, Apollumi. So it's not God's will that, uh, that any should perish, but that they uh, should all reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Okay. Doesn't sound like uh, Christ is going to engage in Humpty Dumptyism. Um, just a you know, <clears throat> just you know, a thought there. And then uh, Revelation chapter twenty-one. Hang on a second here. Revelation chapter twenty-one, and starting at verse one. Then Paul, uh, John, not Paul, John, the Apostle John, writing says, "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth." For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Okay? Now, how do I interpret these passages? I think the correct interpretation of these passages is not Humpty Dumptyism. Jesus wasn't, through his resurrection... Uh, basically uh, showing how he was going to restore the uh, current heavens and the current earth. These passages make it clear that God's intention is to destroy the current heavens and the current earth, and that he's going to renew them via death and resurrection. Same way he's going to restore us, via death and resurrection same way that christ you know death and resurrection see what i'm see what i'm getting at here so anyway so uh, humpty dumptyism kind of a problem but uh, how does this play into his overall gospel let's continue um with uh, rob bell's uh presentation of this universe-wide movement to put it all back together. So Christianity is this universe-wide movement to put it all back together. I'm going to back it up. I want you to hear this because this is important. His eschatology is playing into the gospel. Okay? Listen carefully. And ascended to heaven, well, it just wasn't that unique. The claims of these first Christians weren't really anything knew. Everybody's God had risen from the dead. What makes yours so special? Now these first Christians believed that Jesus' resurrection had implications for the entire universe. Their tradition had taught them that the world is broken and desperately in need of repair and that at some point in the future God was going to put it all back together. Now for them, this future restoration had nothing to do with leaving this world. It was all about the restoration, the renewing, and the reclaiming of this world. So Jesus' resurrection is all about the reclaiming of this world. Despite the passages that we just read that basically said that heaven and earth will pass away, God's going to roll it up like a garment, shake it, and, uh, you know, that it's going to, and there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. 
And so they saw in Jesus' resurrection the beginning of this universe-wide movement to put it all back together. So in Jesus' resurrection was this universe-wide movement to put the world back together? Again, Humpty Dumptyism. Well, this, of course, brought them into direct conflict with the Roman Empire. Because remember, for the Caesars, it was all about Caesar's belief that he was making a new and better world through his power. Now, wait a second here. Got to point something out here. This is a slight mischaracterization at best. And I'll, let me explain why. Okay. Um, Roman citizens... Were they allowed to worship other gods and other deities? Well, of course they were. Look at all the deities that were being worshipped in Athens and in Rome, Jupiter, Zeus, Mars, Venus. Not Addison Mithra at this point, but, uh, you know, Hera and... Uh, 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 Diana, you know, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Art oh, so, wait a second. There was all kinds of different religions uh, tolerated and allowed. What put them into conflict, what put Christians into conflict with Caesar is that they were claiming that Jesus is Lord and they were making a religious claim, not a political claim. And the Caesars took that as a threat to them because Caesar was Lord, and that was a claim that was a political claim. Yeah, there was this cult and religion about it, but yeah, who who really believed he was a god? He'd be dead in 20 years anyway. You see what I'm saying? This isn't quite right, and he's reconstructing a false history to support his false gospel. We continue. Through his armies and through his wealth. And so when Caesar wanted to send out a message to let everybody know of his latest military conquest or his latest accomplishments, he would send out a royal pronouncement telling the masses of his latest achievements. These pronouncements were called in the Greek language euangelions. Good news is they, this, isn't, this isn't some religious significance here. I mean, this was just a common practice. I mean, just like we have news today, we call it, you know, news. There's good news and there's bad news. <clears throat> euangelion was like a gospel or a good news. In English, euangelion spells evangelical. Uh, he's connecting dots that, you know, that are just so ridiculously obvious. It's kind of stupid. Yeah, they, yeah, they were called that. And again, it's like just common everyday practice. Now, these first Christians believed very passionately that the world was not made better through military power. Stop. Where does it say in the Bible, in the writings of the apostles, that the world is not made better through military power and political coercion? I'm asking the question because Rob Bell here is not dealing in Christian theological categories. He's dealing in Marxist categories. He's dealing in categories of liberation theology and Hegelian politics. The world is not made better through military power and political coercion. Where is the big theme in the scripture written about how the world is not made better through military power and political coercion? Where, where in the uh, epistles do we find this 
um, passionate belief. Let me listen to the claim again. Was not. Hang on. I'm backing it up. Hang on. I want you to hear this. Jellical. Now, these first Christians believed very passionately that the world was not made better through military power and political coercion. This okay, wait a second. Where's the big theme in the, in, in the early writings of the early Christians in the New Testament of the world being made better? Where is it written that the, the, the Christian gospel is making the world a better place? Listen carefully. Gospel they were living had nothing. The gospel they were living. Did you see that subtle, subtle switch in categories? Okay. Listen carefully to this. You, 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 words mean things. Listen carefully. Jellical. Now, these first Christians believed very passionately that the world was not made better through military power and political coercion. This gospel they were living. Gospels are not lived. They're proclaimed. This gospel they were living. Gospel is good news. You proclaim good news. You don't, quote, live good news. Switching categories ever so subtly, we continue. Had nothing to do with using political force. The Christians were not about po using political force. That was not their issue. They're at, they were told by Jesus Christ in Luke 24 to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. They were not they were not opposed to political and military force and making a world a better pay, place through pacifism. That is not a major theme of the scriptures at all or even of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. He's switching here. Everything he's built is a, based on a false history and now here comes the false doctrine to come along with it. To force people to live according to your laws. For them, this gospel was about serving the world. No, the gospel was about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. The good news, you know, the good news that Paul says. Hang on a second here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's see if Paul says anything about making the world a better place or about political or military coercion or even about serving your neighbor. By the way, serving your neighbor is a fruit of the transformation that occurs in your life when one trusts the good news, but it's not the good news. We read, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion that I preached to you. Now, it doesn't say that I lived to you, that he preached to them, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, not lived to you, but preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Huh. Big difference here. Bell's preaching a social gospel, a gospel of social good works against military coercion and, and laws and powers that, uh, to support this idea of Humpty Dumptyism. We continue. Especially those on the underside 
of the empire. For them, it was about serving, not ruling. This was not their categories. You're basically foisting a liberation theology, a Hegelian Marxist concept, reading it into the scriptures, but it's not there. Again, where is this big difference between serving versus ruling in the scriptures? As a major theme of Christianity, we are opposed to the military machine of the Roman Empire. And yeah, they were called to proclaim the good news and to love God and to love their neighbor. And there was no problem with ruling either. There was no big problem if a ruler or a governor happened to be a Christian. And so they took this empire propaganda term, gospel. It was just an everyday common term, good news. And they used it to describe this new world that Jesus and his followers were making. Okay, where does it say in Scripture that Jesus and his followers were making a new world? Where does it say this in the Bible? Right under the nose of the empire. Because their way, the way of Jesus, was totally opposed to the way of Rome. Really? It was complete. So it was so Christianity is really a religion, a way of life that is opposed to the way of Rome. The way of, quote, empire. Again, I, I, I'm just not seeing this as a major theme in Scripture there, Rob. Nor do I see that Jesus and his followers were making a new world under the nose of the Roman Empire. And so when we read accounts of how they lived, we read that they shared their possessions. They Fruits of the good news, the gospel, the changed life. They were loving God and loving their neighbor. They fed the hungry and they carried each other's burdens. Well, it's, it's because the gospel for them was a whole way of life. No, the gospel was something they proclaimed and God raised them from the dead spiritually, changed them ontologically on the inside. And what happened? That, that bore fruit. You were seeing fruit in keeping with repentance loving and serving their neighbors big difference your life is not the good news your life is your life and you see you see bear your life bears witness to whether or not you trust in christ through the fruit and the good works that you perform but those good works are not the gospel a whole new world right in the midst of this one. Now, Caesar had a particular word that was used for a city or a village or a province that worshipped Caesar as the son of God, that acknowledged Caesar as Lord. And so Caesar would conquer with his armies a new land and then demand that all of the people would confess Caesar is Lord. If people didn't, well, then they were crucified as a way of showing everybody else what happens when you refuse to submit to the power of the empire. Yeah, because the Christianity is all about uh, overthrowing coercion and, and power and military might. And, oh, boy. But if, but if a group of people did, if a city or a village of a region did acknowledge and worship Caesar as the son of God, Lord, if they did accept Caesar... Again, this is a reconstruction of history here. As their savior. Then their area became a worshiping center of the Caesar. These worshiping centers were called in the Greek language ekklesias. The word ekklesia translates in English church. 
uh, by the way, I'm just, I hate to do this. You know, hang on a second here. I got to look something up in the Greek. I, he, he's saying something true and false. He's making this big point about the word. Ch- oh, come on, Rosebro. Change it over to a word search. C-H-U-R-C-H. Thank you. Uh, okay, Ecclesia. Here we go. Uh, by the way, uh, BDAG just has a real simple explanation for this. Um, ecclesia literally means to be called out. Okay, um, it's a regularly summoned legislative body or an assembly. So, an asse- so if there was a regular assembly of a, it's like the Senate, they they were an ecclesia, a casual gathering of people, or an assemblage, or a gathering was called an ecclesia. Those who were called out, people who with shared belief, a community or a congregation, was an ecclesia. Okay. So Christians, we we get the word ecclesia. It's translated as church, but in the Greek, it was basically it was a multi-purpose word that had multiple ideas. Those who are called out, Jesus hijacks it, hijacks it, and basically says that you know to, you know that on Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, that he would build his ecclesia, his church, his his assembly, his body, uh, his community, the congregation. The thing is, is that it was it was not a church word to begin with. It wasn't a religious word to begin with. Uh, the reality is, is that it became a religious term and became associated as a religious term. But basically, it's the word assembly. It's the word gathering in the Greek. It was just a common word. Okay. And it took on religious significance uh, over the years of Christian history. Kind of like the Greek word hudor, by the way. Hudor means water. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the, if you were to go and order a glass of hudor at a Greek restaurant in Athens, they'd look at you funny because it's come to mean now hudor is like holy water. Yet back in those days, hudor was just, you know, can you pour me a glass of hudor, please? You see what I'm saying? His point is not well taken because... The reality is the word Greek word ecclesia was just a garden variety word for assembly or gathering of people, a legislative body or whatever. And so these first Christians took this empire propaganda term. Uh, The word ecclesia was not an empire propaganda term. It was just a common everyday Greek. By the way, Roman Empire propaganda terms would have been Latin, not Greek. (sighs) <sighs> from ecclesia and they used it to describe their gatherings the, the word ecclesia just means gathering ones where they confessed jesus is lord which by the way when somebody confesses that jesus is lord they're confessing that jesus is god well obviously the way they were living and the things they believed brought them uh, it raised all sorts of questions for those around them well, why? You just made the claim that their beliefs about death and resurrection weren't unique, which is a lie, by the way. So wh- so that couldn't be the, the thing that was raising questions, not the death and resurrection story, not the forgiveness of sins offered in Christ, not Jesus' virgin birth. Those weren't the things that were ways- raising questions because that was, according to Rob Bell, oh, just common stuff, which is a lie. Notice he's taken the emphasis off of the proclamation of the gospel and now turned it into some kind of a life. Who do you believe? Caesar? 
who thinks that a new world, a better world, is made through his brute military and political power? By- Again, this is not a theme of the scriptures. This is liberation the- theology. This is Hegelianism thrown into uh, you know the, the New Testament. It, it's anachronistic. It doesn't fit. Forcing people to do what he says? Or Jesus, who invites you to make a new and better world through loving acts of... No, Jesus nowhere invites you to create a new and better world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. Jesus is not inviting you to make a new and better world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. I know that this just sounds so unloving and cold on my part, but again... Show me from the scripture where Jesus is inviting us to make a new and better world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. If that were the case, you would expect to see that like in Matthew chapter 28. Let's see here. Matthew, Roseboro switched gears here again. Sorry. Uh, Matthew 28. Um, Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some had doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make the world, uh, create a new world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. Is that what it says? No, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Luke chapter 24. Let's go to Luke 24. Um, we read, um, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that a new world can be remade through acts of compassion, loving acts of compassion and generosity, go and proclaim this to all nations. No, it doesn't say that. Here's what it says. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Notice that the repentance and the forgiveness of sins is completely missing from Rob Bell's gospel. Instead, he's saying that Jesus is inviting us to make a new world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. I'm sorry, but this is absolute bovine scatology. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, to use the Greek word, skubalon. It's not true. Jesus is not inviting us to remake a new world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. He wants us to go and proclaim the good news that Christ was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead three days later to proclaim in Jesus Christ repentance from wickedness and the forgiveness of sins offered freely in Christ. That's the good news. Not to go and remake the world through loving acts of compassion and generosity. Compassion and generosity. Caesar who killed Jesus on an execution state? No, he didn't. Caesar didn't kill Jesus. It was us. It was the crowd. It was the Jews. Oh, man. Or God, who raised Jesus from the dead. Whose way do you think is better? Who do you think is Lord? Jesus 
or Caesar? Whose kingdom do you find more compelling? Oh, brother. For them, the gospel was an invitation to a whole new way of life. The gospel was an invitation to a whole new way of life? No, it was an invitation to receive mercy and pardon from God for their wickedness. And they lived this way because they had this profoundly mystical understanding of what they were doing with their lives. They called themselves the body of Christ. And they believed that in their communities, in these loving, compassionate, generous, peace-loving... These peace-loving hippie compounds who... Uh, we're basically Marxist liberation theology guys. <laughs> Communities. They believed that Jesus was present in a way that went beyond words. So they'd invite people to join them, to eat with them, to celebrate with them, to suffer. They invited people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ for their forgiveness with them. And then they'd ask them after they'd seen the hungry fed. Okay, listen carefully what he's saying. They'd the lonely loved and the poor honored. They'd ask people, well, well, do you think Jesus is here? Or more specifically, who do you think is Lord? Who where, where do we read in the scriptures? Hang on a second here. Listen carefully to, uh, they called themselves the body of Christ. And they believe that in their communities, in these loving, compassionate, generous, peace-loving communities, they believed that Jesus was present in a way that went beyond words. So they'd invite people to join them, to eat with them, to celebrate with them, to suffer with them. And then they'd ask them, after they'd seen the hungry fed, the lonely loved. Where do we see the apostles, uh, you know, feeding the hungry, uh, loving the lonely, and honoring the poor? You know, I'm asking this question because we do hear of a few healings in the uh, in the New Testament, and we do hear of offerings being taken for uh, those uh, Christians who were suffering because of famine, but I, they weren't honored because they were poor. And again, I just what were the apostles doing? They were out busy proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. And they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's how they portrayed themselves. And it was a big deal. It was completely different than anything that anybody had ever heard. To the point where the Greeks were scoffing at it. They didn't say, oh yeah, we've heard that before. Because they hadn't. And the poor honored. They'd ask people, well, well, do you think Jesus is here? Yeah, well, when did the people say, hey, yeah, you know, do you think Jesus is here? Look at all the loving things that we do to each other. Look at our hippie compound and our, our, our little Marxist, uh, you know, groupie thing going on here. And, hey, you know, don't you think Jesus is here? Look at how much we love each other. I mean, isn't this great? Or more specifically, who do you think is Lord? Who's making a better world, Caesar or Jesus? Who's making a better world? Again, the Christian gospel is not Humpty Dumptyism that Jesus is putting the world back together again and making the world a better place. They believed that a church was a living, breathing display of a whole new world God was bringing about right here, right now. Really? So God, that's, see, that's why making the world a better place is so important because God's bringing about a new world right here, right now. 
You know, Rob, uh, did we get off track at World War One, World War Two, Korean War, Vietnam War? You know, all the wars that are going, it doesn't seem like the world's getting any closer to this new world thing at all. You, you familiar with the whole collapse of the global economy? Seem to be screwing it up left and right. How are we? So, you know, if uh, Christianity was supposedly all about making the world into this utopian society, you would think they would have pulled it off during the mid, uh, during the Dark Ages, during the medieval times. The reason I say that is because Christianity wasn't fractured into a bazillion pieces at that point, and you know, basically, Europe was a Christian theocracy. Yeah, the, this whole new world thing just kind of fell apart, didn't it? Because some people... Is, is this the world according to uh, Aladdin? A whole new world, a place where... Yeah. Some people are fierce with reality, aren't they? Notice, uh, watch this next thing. He's going to attack objective ideas and thoughts and data and drive you to subjectivity. Watch this. They don't have to spout off about how they're right and everybody else is wrong because there's something going on inside of them. The morning, uh, the Mormon burning in the bosom here. So powerful, so tangible. So subjective, so ooey, so gooey, so mystical, so hard to pin down. Maybe if you had an orange, it would go away. Maybe you have low blood sugar. Y you can't help but ask them questions. You're dying to know why they are the way they are. You want them to explain the reason for the hope that's within them. It's the hope of the resurrection, that would be. Because when you're around people like this, you have the sense that you've in some way been with Jesus. So this is the emergent version of the Mormon burning in the bosom here. Turn off your mind and just feel, can't you just feel the love coming from these people? Can you feel the love tonight? And that is church. No, it isn't. Church is where we gather around, gather together as an assembly of those who trust in Christ to feed on God's word and the sacraments and proclaim Jesus is God in human flesh. In him there is forgiveness and there is no name under heaven given by which men can be saved. This group of people who, by their compassion... Compassion and generosity. Through their compassion and generosity. Their generosity. The grace that they extend. They extend God's grace and mercy, not theirs. Theirs is kind of inconsequential. It helps. To others, you find yourself believing when you're around them that God hasn't given up on the world. So here it comes. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Here it is. That's... The gospel. That's it. The, the gospel is the good news that God hasn't given up on the world. Hang on a second here. Um, hang on. If that's the good news that God hasn't given up in the world, we should be able to find that in our Bible. Hold on. Given up on the world. Nope, not in there. It's not in the Bible, by the way. Do you... That, that the tomb is empty and that a giant resurrection rescue is underway. And really, there's a big giant resurrection rescue underway. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Kind of lame, too. Yeah, big hiccups along the way, you know, like, you know, the Crusades, World War One, the, uh, you know, World War Two, the Revolutionary War. Then you got the constant wars back and forth between the French and the uh, the British. And not to say all the wars going on in China, and then you got the the you know the 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 
stuff going on. Yeah, see that you and I can be a part of it. And so, yes, this has a deeply personal dimension to it. See, we can be a part of this great resurrection rescue because the gospel is the good news that God hasn't given up on the world. It's not repentance and the forgiveness of sins or that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. The gospel, according to um, Rob Bell, is that this lame, completely powerless to save good news, God hasn't given up on the world. This. Jesus is saving me. He's saving me from my sins, from my mistakes. Now, before you think this is all Christian, he's saving me from my sins, from my mistakes, from my pride. You see, he's saving you from the things that are keeping you from getting to this new world. From my pride, from my indifference to the suffering of the world. Where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Really clearly, it's not there. Around me, from my cynicism and despair, the brokenness I see in the world around me is true of my own soul. And so he's rescuing me moment by moment, day by day, because God wants to put it all back together. You, me, the whole world. And so he starts deep inside each of us with our awareness. He starts deep inside each of us with our awareness. Where is that taught in the scriptures? We're we're basically salt and light and go out and proclaim the light to the darkness. There's nothing, no deep awareness within ourselves. What is this? That we need help, that we need saving, that we need rescuing. And from what? How about God's wrath? Are you going to talk about that? He hasn't given up on the world. God's in, involved in this great resurrection rescue to uh, do Humpty Dumptyism. And he begins to show us step by step what it looks like to put flesh and blood on this gospel. There it is again, flesh and blood. No, gospel is simply good news. We go out and proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross for us. And we tell people to repent, to change their mind and turn from their wickedness to the forgiveness of sins. Are you detecting any of that in this little speech here? Well, because we all fall short, and that's the beautiful part. Broken, flawed, vulnerable people. Sinners who need to repent and trust in the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. Like you and me are invited to be the hands and feet of a Jesus who loves us exactly as we are and yet loves us way too much to let us stay that way. I believe. I believe because I see. I see the resurrection all around me. So there you go. You're the resurrection. You are. It doesn't matter if Christ really rose from the dead. See, what, what matters is, is that you, you, you know. If people only had your life and they were asked the question, has Jesus risen from the dead? How would they answer? Has he? If, looking at me to ask the question, has Jesus risen from the dead, is really kind of stupid. Looking in the wrong place. I'm going to point you to the eyewitnesses. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a historical fact. The eyewitnesses were there. It has nothing to do with me. 
May you be a yes to the question, has Jesus risen from the dead? Oh, man, this is really bad. And may you come to see, may you understand that you are the good news. No, I am not the good news. You are the gospel. No, I'm not, and neither are you. If I'm the good news and you're the good news, then Christianity is doomed. No. No. (sighs) Okay, now folks, what you just heard is a completely different gospel. It is not the biblical gospel spoken in a way that's relevant to today's culture. It's a different gospel. Let me again remind you what the gospel is from the scriptures. The scriptures clearly define the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read, Now, Paul, I would like to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I declared to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And what Rob Bell is basically saying is that you're the gospel. Your life is the gospel. You, the, the proof of the resurrection is you. No, it's not. And no, the gospel is not the good news that God has not given up on the world. It's the good news that Christ died for our sins. Rob Bell begins this gospel presentation with a completely fabricated history. He then proceeds from his completely fabricated history with a Hegelian Marxist liberation theology, social liberal, social gospel bent and launches into a Hegelian liberation theology social gospel, which basically means that what's the gospel? You feeding the poor and generous acts of loving kindness to the poor and the needy and honoring you know, so-and-so and all this kind of stuff. This is all against the Roman Empire and, and coercion and all that kind of stuff. That is not the gospel. What Rob Bell is preaching is something completely different. This guy is off the Christian reservation. This is not an overstatement on my part. What he is preaching is not Christianity. It's not Christian doctrine. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not capable of saving. It's a complete fabricated lie from beginning to end. It's subtle. It sounds warm and fuzzy. It sounds loving and kind, but it isn't. At its core, it's satanic. It's wrong. It's false. It can't save you. If you know somebody who is listening to Rob Bell and thinks he's the best, next best thing uh, to Christianity as, uh, as Billy Graham, you've got to wake them up with the truth. This stuff is not the truth. That it was a false, false, false gospel. And what was missing? God's wrath, sin, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. It was all missing. And a complete, oh, and by the way, that completely um, inaccurate, fabricated history regarding the pagan religions and all that kind of stuff. Well, that was all fun and dandy, too. Those were all lies to support the bigger lie.
So there you have it. What do you think? Email me. We'd love to get your feedback. Sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you in order to pay our bills so that we can continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Absolutely deadly, deadly, deadly. This is not the Christian gospel. And as the Apostle Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be eternally condemned. Our prayers go out to Rob Bell and to those who are deceived by his false gospel, and we pray that God would open their eyes and grant them repentance and trust and belief in the true good news, not you as the good news, not me as the good news, not me as proof of the resurrection, but Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead for our justification according to the eyewitness testimony given to us in the scripture. Wow, that is just deadly, deadly false and wrong. Amazing. All right. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in his mercy and grace won by Jesus Christ and his propitiatory death on the cross for your sins. Amen.